Welcome to episode 53 of Control the Controllables. Today, and as it happens, it's actually, it's the week of my 12th year wedding anniversary. So big shout out to my gorgeous wife, Vicky. Happy anniversary. Um, I don't have Vicky on the show, but I do have my best man, our best man from our wedding, um, Nick Morgan. He's also a business, part business owner of Soto Tennis. And Nick brings a fantastic insight. Again, tennis being the vehicle, Nick, Nick played tennis to a good level. He reached the under-18 national final with myself many a year ago. And he also won the British University Championships whilst at Bath University. And he's then gone into the world of sports science, specifically went into nutritional side of that and is is now also running his own nutritional company. Uh, We're going to really tackle two main topics today. One is nutrition and the second one is data and and how the data works in the world of sports science, the world of nutrition, and then comparing that on how it works in the tennis world. It's a really fascinating chat. I think it's a a very educational chat and, and I hope that you listening will take lots from it. There'll be some questions left unanswered. There'll hopefully be some thoughts provoked and anyone wants to reach out to myself and Nick through the usual channels, please do. There's lots of discussion to be had on it and there's still lots for us all to learn in these areas. But I'm sure you're going to really enjoy the show. Before I pass you over to Nick, don't forget, press that subscribe button. Press that review button, that rating button on, on, on the iTunes app. Any, any reviews and ratings, much appreciated to keep getting these fantastic podcasts out far and wide. But now I'm going to pass you over to Nick Morgan. So Nick Morgan... A big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks, Daniel. Yeah, looking forward to it. Uh, for those listening, he's, he's one of only three people probably in this world that call me Daniel. Um, my parents my parents are the other two. But his excuse for calling me that is we go back a long way. Uh, it's, this is my, my best mate coming on the podcast. Best man. Best man at our wedding. Uh, we first met back probably in 1987, 88 in, in the short tennis world. Um, we, we went through the tennis, tennis journey together. Uh, we actually made the final of the under-18 nationals back in the day. Um, Nick, in his own right, was a fantastic tennis player. Um, probably one of his highlights, winning the Bucks Championships whilst at Bath University. Uh, was certainly good enough to have a world ranking, but didn't then take it up as a, as a professional um, part of part of his world and is now my business partner at Soto Tennis so lots of he can probably give you lots of insights I don't want him to give uh, but it's great to finally have you on the show Nick I still got that um, best man speech actually with all the stories so if anyone wants to hear about it I can probably sell it because there's some beauties in there if, if, if this one flops, if this podcast flops, maybe we just go controversial on the next one. Um, I'm, sure we can find, I'm sure we can find some things to, to talk about. So as we're talking about, I guess, off air there, there's, there's a couple of big topics we want to get into on this podcast. Nick um, has his own, well, I'll let Nick explain it, but has his own nutritional company. Um, nutrition is obviously a massive part of 
of the world of sport, the world of tennis, and we we want to we want to address that in this podcast, and we also want to be looking at. You know, data in tennis is something that's relatively new, but obviously in the science world, the nutritional world, it's something that they've delved into a lot more detail on. So we're going to look at some comparisons on that. But before we get to that, Nick, where does tennis fit into this? You know, tennis, we, we've talked about at the academy, tennis being a vehicle in so many different areas. What, how's tennis been that vehicle for you throughout your career so far? I suppose that's where everything starts, really. Um, that's all I remember. Being younger, being a kid, was playing tennis. Uh, and that, of course, supporting and following Newcastle United, I suppose. But, you know, from a young age, we played short tennis together. Uh, back in the day when it was short tennis before um, mini tennis or, what, or whatever it is now. Um, that's, I was just sport through and through. I only ever read back pages of newspapers. That's all I ever cared about. And tennis was the, the sport, I think, I suppose, I, I was pretty good at I don't think I'd ever use the words you did in terms of being that good I think in the grand scheme of things junior wise it was all right um but I played to a good level I suppose and that's everything I did um right the way through juniors and then it just engrossed your life doesn't it It takes over everything um school is arranged almost around tennis weekends are around tennis your conversations at home are based around tennis um and that's that's what I did and to be fair I loved it um and I was okay we played together nationals at 18 and um, I made a conscious decision then to go to University of Bath and I had an LTA scholarship for the four years I was there. We were successful as a university team. I was successful as, a, as an individual for a couple of years um, but I think at that stage I already knew I wasn't going to take it on professionally principally because um, I think inherently I knew I probably loved the game but I didn't love it enough to do what would ever be required to go in to play the amount that you need to play or travel to the places you need to travel to. Um, it just wasn't something that I don't think ever even came close to a decision-making process. But um, the, the the love of the game and the love of sport just lent it to being, well, what was the next best thing? Well, it was kind of being the person behind the athlete. Yeah. So that's why I went to Bath to do sports science, physiology. Um, and that's what led me there. And that's effectively been the start of a, a career in sports science, which then effectively became more of a commercial role in sports science in that, I mean, yeah. I now work in industry as a part, as opposed to being the sports scientist, as it were, in a tracksuit. And, and from, from the time, I mean, I, I have good, strong memories of you in your final year, I believe it was at Bath, of working at Lillishall, the, the old, the old stomping ground for, for English football, that's where that's where it started. What roles have you had to take you to where you are now, so the listeners understand? Yeah, so I mean, I suppose even a step back from that, the reason I went to Bath was they did the degree, um, obviously with the tennis, and they did a placement year. So I did my gap year um, at Lillishaw at the Sports Injury and Human Performance Centre. So it was a it was a small unit within the, the, the national sports center which effectively provided the provision of sports science physiology nutrition services to to elite clubs uh, individuals and across multiple sports so i spent a year there it was amazing uh, best thing i would ever say to people in terms of a year in industry throughout an education process for preparing you for life thereafter in yeah. terms of having some sort of consciousness of what the real world actually looks like um, and they subsequently employed me straight after my degree, um, which took all of the headaches about, you know, where's your first job going to come from? And that was, that was great. So I worked 
for three years actually there between Lillishaw and also Home Pierpont and Home Pierpont being the National Water Sports Centre based in Nottingham. So we provided services to uh, British Canoe Union, Great Britain Speed Skating, British Gymnastics, um, professional football clubs. Um, so we had lots of clubs come through, uh, professional rugby. Um, and, prob ah, and my other big one was UK athletics, UK disability athletics, actually working in preparation for the 2004 Paralympics. Yep. So people can date me back to um, 19, well, 2004, which was in Athens. Um, we, uh, I was kind of lead physiologist at that time for um, some of the acclimatization strategies back then. Um, so that would be like some Tanny Gray Thompson, David Weir, um, and a few others that if people know that they're, they're a Paralympic athletic sport, which is, which is an amazing time for me. Um, and that was great. But I, like most life, followed a mentor. I had a mentor there, a guy called John Brewer, who um, was um, somebody that took me on my placement year, believed yeah. in me, gave me a job. He actually moved into industry um, and moved to GlaxoSmithKline, who were the owners of LucasAid Sport. Um, and I followed him there because he gave me an opportunity which at the time felt like an just like a no-brainer actually yeah, yeah. Um, and so I followed into GSK five years there and then realized that there was um, it was a very big company and um, always a strange story to recollect but effectively decided having never thought I'd ever run my own business that somehow I would on my own back resign um, and start my own business which was effectively then consulting yeah. which i still don't know to this day what that actually means but it, it just means that uh, I, I provide opinion to companies about what they should do on the on nutritional products as it stands today just to take you back there on, on a point i think you, the point you make on the mentors are one that i i don't think we should let go because i guess coming out of university experience mentorship these things actually should provide more value than actually an annual wage, I, I believe, for for young people trying to trying to make it in whatever industry that that they are in. Did you did you stumble across that, or was that a conscious thing that you you wanted to have someone who was going to help you in your early stage of your career? I don't think I recognised it at that age. So you know, at twenty yeah. at twenty when we were applying for placements, I didn't I didn't recognise the importance of that at that stage. I just you know you too I hadn't appreciated it. Yeah. I had an interview for this placement in Lillishaw, which I thought sounded amazing. Of course it does. You're going to go to the National Sports Centre, the home of um, England football at the time, in terms of the Sports Science and Medical Centre, British Gymnastics, England Hockey, and a few others. I mean, what more would a kid want who's done sports yeah. science? It sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, and then I was interviewed by a guy called John Brewer. And John, who was my mentor, basically, we talked football. And do you know why? Because he was basically the first ever applied sports scientist in the UK. And he talked to me about Bobby Robson and going to Italia 90. And literally, as you and I would do, and many others would remember that, it's kind of like you drop the bomb moment. And you sit there and go, oh my God, you're in Bobby Robson's autobiography. Yeah, you went yeah. to Italia 90. You prepared England. You prepared my hero's team as a, as a that was it. So we spoke football. And yeah. my recollection of an interview was talking football. I'm sure he asked me sensible questions, but my recollection was just kind of, yeah. we struck a connection, you know? And then I think he just went, I'll do a good job for him because maybe, maybe he felt I could do the job, but I would also be somebody he could talk to. Yeah. I wouldn't cause him any hassle. Um, and that was it. He took me on. And then I, I did a, a year where I just 
loved it. Yeah. I loved it. I think I was reasonably self-sufficient when I was there. Um, and he rewarded me with a job and I just got on with him and we still keep in touch today and, um, yeah. and forever and, and ever and a day, I'll always talk about the importance of finding people you have a connection with and, and if they can be mentors, then that can, that's a great place for, for unconscious guidance and yeah. also conscious guidance. So they can guide you and tell you whether they're going to guide you in a certain way. I think with John, it was unconscious guidance. I think I didn't yeah. realize how much he guided me at the time. Yeah. Um, and it was amazing. He was a, he still is a true friend. My, I can't have you on the podcast without mentioning my favorite Nick Morgan story as a sports scientist still to this day. And for those listening as, as, as good friends of Nick, obviously when you're in your twenties, do you really care what each other are doing? Probably not to the absolute detail, but did I care about what he was doing when I turned match of the day on one Wednesday night and I saw him running on uh, on the pitch in Anfield as Grimsby, I believe, had just knocked Liverpool out of the League Cup. And there he was, my mate, jumping out of the dugout. And, and, and if you'd seen him, and I need to pull it up sometime, Nick, the applauding of the fans that you were doing at that end was as if you'd scored a hat-trick that night. So the joy, the joy that you got. So tell, tell us about those sort of moments and memories as well. Because for a sport-loving person like yourself, that must have been special to have those experiences. Some of the, the best. I did wonder what story you were going to say, but then I actually think about it. It's the only story. It's, it's, the, best, it's the best story. So... I did, Grimsby Town came into Lillishaw when I was on placement. And a long story short is I did some testing for them in the lab. At the end of my placement, I said to John, I really want to go work in football over the summer before I go back to do my final year. And he said, why don't we ring up Lenny Lawrence? Because um, Grimsby will need some help. And um, he rang Lenny Lawrence up for me. And Lenny said, yeah, come down and help us with preseason. Unbeknown to me, Lenny actually was going to get me to run pre-season. Bear in mind, I wasn't even finished my degree at that stage. Okay. So I went into Grimsby Town, stayed in digs with the players in the same B&B in Cleethorpes and Grimsby, walked in the day before, and he said, so Nick, what are we going to do for pre-season? <laughs> I was literally like, what? I thought I was here to help. I thought I was here to continue my development as a, as a placement student. And he said, no, no, you've got 50 players. And I thought I'd get the academy in. And then all these coaches, four or five of them around me said, yeah, yeah, just tell us what you need help with. And it was a sink or swim moment. And I don't think I've ever um, uh, felt any level of nervousness quite like it. But the next day, Lenny introduced me to the, the, the team and said, by the way, this is Nick. He's going to look after preseason. He looks younger than all of you, but you're going to listen to him. I was um, 20, what would I be? I would be 20, 20, I don't even think I was 21. And I was running, they were in the championship, the equivalent of the championship. So we ran pre-season. Um, when I left pre after, when I left to go back to university in September, would you believe we were in the top two in the division, um, in the championship? Not that I had much to do with it. And they asked me to make sure I stayed in touch. And actually the first week back of university, we were playing Liverpool, who were the holders of the League Cup. Gerard Houllier had just run the triple the year before in terms of the cups. Um, and um, we were playing them on a Wednesday night away and it went to extra time. Uh, I can name the players, but basically Long and um, Phil Jevons, ex-Everton, 
in the last yeah. minute of extra time, scored from the scored from the touchline from 35 yards, having been battered, but somehow sneaked it into extra time to win 2-1. Um, we all screamed off, running off the dugout. Uriah Rennie was the fourth official, and because I'd worked with the professional football referees as well, turned around and actually said to me, Nick, sit down, because I knew him, <laughs> because I was acting like an idiot. And then the game was won, and literally, we all went running on, and there's, there's images of me literally giving it this one, clapping in front of the fans. But I can't begin to tell you what it feels like. I mean, people who are listening would know, but the, the sheer... Like it's, like, it's like I lived my own cup final that day. And yeah. when people talk about the joy of the FA Cup and third round and whether we like it or not in the Premier League, but when you're just third round on a Wednesday night and it means something like that in front of 35,000 people, 40,000 people, and you're the underdog and it happens, yeah. literally, it's just emotions I'm not even sure I'll ever, I'd, I'd ever still be able to control in the future. Because I don't yeah, think yeah. I acted particularly professionally at the time as a, as a 21-year-old. But oh my, yeah. hey, it was unreal. The yeah. best feeling ever. And it's what we all love about sport, isn't it, as well? Um, you know, that, that raw passion, that emotion. And, and, and I guess that also, I suppose, links us in a little bit to the, to the objectiveness of, of, of the world that you are now in. You know, we, we have this raw passion, emotion in sport, but there is some absolute experts behind that. That, that are bringing the science and something we've discussed a lot and we'll get into sport being a science. Is it an art? Is it an art of the science? You know, all of these things. So, so can you just explain to the listeners, what do you do now in terms of your company and what, what, what sort of bits do you bring together? And um, yeah, over to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so back then I was a sports scientist physiologist. So, you know, we, we ran training behind the scenes. We made athletes fitter for their sport, whether they yeah. played in the heat, the cold, the altitude, we made them, you know, better tennis players, better football players, better rugby players. And it was all about specificity, periodization, um, testing in the lab, testing in the field. That was the, that was the framework. Um, and within that was nutrition. Um, then uh, I got the call from industry. And, and this is a boy from the North who doesn't know much about, industry spent his whole time in a tracksuit um, and then walked into a big shiny building of corporate people for GlaxoSmithKline to work on a on Luke State to work on a sports drink Luke State Sports you know carbohydrate electrolyte drink that was iconic and synonymous with the likes of Bailey Thompson, Stephen Gerrard, John Barnes kicking it into a dustpan and all the rest of it um, and to work on that to help develop the science behind the product which was a bit of a curveball adjacent left turn but I trusted the mentor that the job was a great one. Um, financially, it was a bit of a big difference between the corporate structure and uh, salaries at the time within elite sport. And, and it, it just, honestly, I just went with my gut. It felt like the right thing to do. I trusted someone. And, and to be honest, I walked into industry and I absolutely loved it. And effectively, those jobs exist, which I didn't realize. And it is providing expertise into industry with regards to what would you develop for next next kind of products what products do actually people want to need and to be honest you know what the beauty about it is that they employed me to do everything that i had just learned for the last five years but uh, to embed it to but to embed it into a commercial company so that was to be the practitioner to be the coach to be the and just actually say what is it that you would have recommended as a practitioner and help us understand that so that we can develop products um, and that's what I do. I did that for Luxe Sports and then 
realized that there's got to be more to sport to the world of sports drinks and then i got involved on my own consulting to some of the i mean it sounds a bit grandiose doesn't it some of the world's biggest sports nutrition companies but they just happen to be some of the yeah. biggest ones optimum nutrition been a supporter of the lta for a long time not sure they are right now um but you know they work um integrate a lot of elite sport worked with a lot of brands actually optimum nutrition phd um, everyday snacking brands like Brown's Balls. Um, and then I work with the ingredient suppliers, the contract manufacturers, and they all want to know how to create great nutritional products yeah. that will be used by the elite, but ultimately will be sold to the everyday. Um, yeah. And I actually play a very commercial role now, but at the heart and soul of that is always the, the scientific knowledge and the practical application that I gained <laughs> as being a, a scientist. Um, and it is an yeah. amazing world, and I honestly yeah. love it. Yeah, but in in for on that point there, with these big companies ultimately trying to produce something that is very specific for purpose for someone in the elite world, and for it to commercially work to the masses, surely those two things are conflicting. Yeah, hundred um, percent, and very difficult to do. Um, also quite an archaic model in truth. So back in the day when Steven Gerrard used to, you know, drink Luxade Sport, then a lot of people would see that and just do it. And, and parents would also follow it. Uh, kids would obviously want to do it. And there'd be a natural link between that. It's quite aspirational. And it's still used to this day, the aspirational sponsorship piece. Um, but in the broader nutritional portfolio, protein powders, bars, drinks, etc., making what an elite athlete wants, more often than not is not commercially viable for yeah. what actually people use and want on a daily basis. So there's various yeah. ways that we approach that, yeah. um, that can be done. Um, and my, my role for many of them is to help people understand how they balance that dynamic so they can be still credible within elite sporting environments. Yeah. Um, but yet they can make products that are commercially viable. Um, yeah. because if you don't have anything commercially viable, honestly, the company won't survive and neither would I as somebody who tries to advise them. Yeah. And, and in terms of, as we move into nutrition and I want to get into a little bit more detail on the nutritional bit for players, tennis players, listening, parents, coaches, what, what's the important things to consider when they're looking at nutrition? Um, well, there's a lot. Um, but I think, probably the most important thing I always start with is just that people love to overcomplicate it and they also want to make it seem and feel really hard. Nutrition should be really one of the most simplest and um, autonomous, unconscious things that we do, eat and drink healthily um, for us, you know, to, to, for the body to perform well. And I, I think that's a really important place to start. We often overcomplicate it, but in terms of the impact it can have, then clearly nutrition is important to performance. It helps us to run faster, jump higher, uh, recover quicker. Um, it also keeps us healthy, so free from coughs, colds, flus, and infections. It helps us to recover from injury. So all of the all of the attributes of um, all of the attributes of performance, nutrition plays a fundamental role in. Now, it's not the the sole factor, of course. It just yeah. is one of the bits of the toolkit but it's a it's a really important area to which yeah. you know i have spent a lot of time working with athletes on um and and it, it's, a, it's a key role to make marginal gains and improvements yeah um, and if i me as a tennis coach i guess 
me coaching a, a tennis player, what I want from the team behind, the sports science team behind, is fundamentally I want my player on court more often. You know, that's, you know, tennis is a sport where 12 months can pass very fast if you have a couple of niggles and a couple of, you know, you lose a bit of confidence. So so what role do you think nutrition plays in, in keeping keeping a player on the court? It's actually probably the most important role. Um, number of analogies from different sports, elite rugby that I spend a lot of time in is people actually, it's more important to think about the other 23 hours of the day rather than the one hour of the day that you as a coach or that they're on court. Now, yeah. clearly they're on court more than one hour a day, but the sentiment in that point is basically saying it's the time off the court that's probably most important because one, yeah. it lays the groundwork, but two, it's obviously a lot of time that can, where things can be undone. Yeah. Um, and I think the sexy stuff is people thinking, what can I do now? I'm about to go on court and uh, you know, I really need that. And it's going to be amazing to me yeah. in terms of the acute period, the, the yeah. immediate before, during and after exercise. But honestly, the most interesting part of nutrition and the bit that's most important is the bit that I've always refer, referred to as health for performance. If you're yeah. not healthy, you can't perform. And being healthy means eating well on a daily basis, staying free from coughs, colds, flus and infections and staying free from injury. Because injury and cost colds, flus infections are the two biggest reasons that people lose time on court. Yeah. And as a coach and having some background in tennis, having time on court is a hugely important determining yeah. factor of development. And if you're not on court, yes, you can do other things at various points through these periods. But that's crucial. So nutrition is, is, is really important to that. Yeah. And if you're off court, the time to get back to court. So yeah. nutrition in response to injury, nutrition in response to illness. Um, it's not really a super sexy strategy to, to do no. 30 minutes before you go on court. That's the, that's the shining stuff. The, the real bedrock of nutrition is done the other 23 hours of the day. Yeah. And I, and I guess that's a, that's an attitude, isn't it? It's a habit. It's a, it's an outlook on it. You know how how do we how do we grow those habits with our young athletes? Yeah, I mean these are our biggest discussion points, really, aren't they? It's about um, it's about education. It's about habits and behaviours. It's it's less talking about science. It's more talking about um, coaching and and behaviour change, right. um, which I think is all element of science, and that's often often lost. You know, people get yeah. told to be great scientists, but the reality is the conversion of science into applied messages that people understand and, and take on in terms of daily life is, is the biggest skill of all. And that's a behavioral change, communication, almost psychological approach. Um, and, and, and that's, is really important. And there's a number of elements of that is how do you educate people at what age? Yeah. Um, the influence of those around them. Yeah. I mean, that's super important. The habits and behaviors of the coaches of the players that they that they are playing with, um, maybe the aspirational players that they um, that they look up to. What is their habits like at home? What do their parents yep. do? What is their inherent education? And unfortunately, it goes into other aspects like um, uh, social, sort of cultural elements. Um, how much cash is in the family to be able to spend on food um, and things like that. So it's a it's a complicated space. But you know what? It just comes down to knowing your athletes. Um, but for nutrition, it's about contact time. Um, as a tennis coach, people prioritize contact time. Nutrition sometimes is overlooked um, yeah. in terms of contact time. Um, and I don't know, contact time is quite important for all of these disciplines. And that's, yeah. the, that's the sort of the fight 
um, that yeah. you're playing with with all the other areas. Yeah. It's a very it's a very emotive sub subject as well, nutrition, because you know people like you said people like to like to defend. So so they'll defend the fact that it costs money. It costs money to eat well. It's too expensive to eat well. They'll they'll defend parents will always defend uh, have a have a natural defense mechanism to you know well i don't eat well so they'll justify that and they'll they'll not want they'll they'll not want to feel that they are impacting the bad choices that maybe their kids are kids are making you know so how do how do we find our way around that and i guess the the last point would be it's obviously an emotive subject when you know, when we talk about the psychological effect that, that people can have with with eating and disorders, and you know, it's, it's, it's a big minefield out there. And I suppose that's what I love and hate about it. Um, I mean, we love stuff. We talked earlier about the emotive element of sports, isn't it? and nutrition is, is hugely emotive. I mean, incredibly so. Um, people's perceptions can be so strong and vehement about what's right or what's wrong, what's healthy or what's not healthy. Um, good examples of that, you know, game changers on Netflix this year suggesting just how healthy being a vegan or plant-based diet was. And, and the yeah. reality was it was a hugely biased, um, yeah. scientifically poor um, yeah. documentary. And they missed the point. Um, the point yeah. being that, you know, eating plants, more vegetables is important as part of an overall dietary approach. Um, my take on that has always been, if you try to be a plant or vegetarian based for one or two days a week, it actually teaches you to be a better cook because you have to be a little bit more inspirational in terms of what yeah. you do. So it's actually about, it's the bigger picture about why these things are important, but there's no one thing that can ever be better than something else because nutrition is about three macronutrients, carbohydrate, fat, and protein, and some water. You can't mess about with that too much, really. Yeah, and every yeah. food has a little bit of everything in. Yeah. Um, and the, the behaviors are really uh, uh, simple to address, but um, yeah, it's, it's hugely emotive. Um, weight is an over-domineering topic, um, maybe more so in females than males, but I think males has probably talked less about than it is yeah. in females. So I think it, uh, probably a lot more goes on. Yeah. Males have their own issues with it in terms of maybe being over-dominated by the, the idea to be more aesthetically driven, look yeah. good in their shirts, etc. Um, you know, when do you take skin folds? How easy is that to do? Measuring yeah. body composition at what age is that right to do? Um, and so on. And um, yeah, it's also the case of what people do versus what they actually say they do is, is massively different. Yeah. So they can go away and say, I eat really well. And then behind the scenes, they're doing something completely different. Um, I will say at this stage that um, the parents at most of this case are hugely in control, more yeah. so than they probably imagine. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, we can reflect back on what we were like as children and what the diet looked like then. You know, I used to travel. I can't remember who mentioned Corby in what is, I think it might be Fulcher or somebody mentioned Corby, but I just remember to go to Corby every bloody weekend. I used to stop at um, uh, like a little chef every Friday night with my mum. I'm not saying little chef's good, bad, or indifferent, but that's what we did. And just, yeah. you know, I don't think my mum probably realized that. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing. I heard. I heard something the other day. It was a, a Bruce Lee. A Bruce Lee quote, and he said um, he always thought when he when he set out on this you know martial arts journey that a punch is a punch and a kick is a kick, and then 
as he went through the process of learning more about martial arts, he he realized, wow, this it's not a punch, isn't a punch, the kick isn't a kick. There's so many complexities. There's so many, there's so many little rabbit holes. There's so many things that are that are so undiscovered, that then brought a lot of confusion to to his kind of philosophies and his understanding. And as he started to to master the martial arts field, he then realised that a punch is a punch and a kick is a kick. And yeah. and and I think that's I guess I've watched your journey you know as, as as such good mates and you know whenever i've asked you about nutrition i always go back to what you'd say make more better decisions more often and and i think for for people that are trying to learn about nutrition that probably is too simple simplified but now that you have have mastered the field as such and you you know so much and you've been on your learning journey i i really like that then it comes back to that kind of simple message you know it sometimes gets lost you know in, in totally complicated totally make better decisions more often um and um, there's some, you know, some guiding principles underneath that, you know, um, lift protein living often, you know, try to clever carbohydrates. Um, if you eat protein and carbohydrate, well, fat takes care of itself, you know, yeah. food and veg, eat the rainbow, that kind of stuff. Um, it's, it's really straight. It's straightforward. I know it's never, it's never quite as easy to implement. It's just yeah. that on, on the bottom line is make better decisions more often. It's a stepwise, stepwise process. And for those that, you know, manage academies or look to get nutritional expertise in, and the journey as a practitioner is an interesting one because you're not really taught at an early age as a practitioner to, to communicate or understand how to apply the messages. Yeah. So you almost go over the top. You try to be too scientific. You try to tell them what you're desperate to tell them, not you don't listen to what they need to know. Yeah. Um, and then somewhere along the line, someone helps and guides you and, um, and you, you get better at that. But there is a, a fallback with practitioners who also like to overcomplicate things for justifying their role. That's not a cynical or a negative piece. It's just sometimes an unconscious thing that, that, yeah. that people do along the journey. Um, and they like to, you know, to bring something new and they like to influence their boss or, or other people around them. And maybe it's to just influence players because people yeah. want to get a relationship with players. So you have to use tactics to do that, which is fine as long as you do it in the right way. Um, but ultimately, every practitioner that I know, good ones, are working on a very basic premise of helping people make better decisions more often. The better they are at that, the more refined you can become and yeah. the more you can go to the shiny stuff. And yeah. there's some really amazing shiny stuff that can make some really good differences. But yeah. broadly, for most people, it's irrelevant until the building blocks are in place. It's just yeah. sadly, that's not the sexiest of messages. Yeah, because it, it, that, that takes me on to Nick. I think the the thing around marginal gains, which I guess became quite a sexy message from from UK cycling, I think was probably where where we first we first heard it. And certainly, one of the things I see, I guess, if we look at the certain pillars that are going to give you big gains, you know, working hard every day giving your best effort, you know, sorting out some kind of fundamental techniques on, on the tennis court. And when we start getting into things like nutrition... That My point on that was very simple, and that is that um, the I don't think you can criticise a player who might, um, oh, who might be very, very good at nutrition and that they over-prioritise it in some respect because what they're doing is that they are 
they are doing everything you're asking of them in one particular discipline. Yeah. Um, and so if they're adopting great nutritional behaviors and they're becoming, you know, really detailed about it and, and they're just doing it really, really well, I think that's, that should be applauded. And, and, and I don't think we should ever um, critique that um, b- beyond the point of saying, fantastic, you're doing a great job in it. The bigger picture is about the priorities um, yeah. and that, I don't think you can play nutrition off in that sense against the other ones. We just need to be better at influencing their ability to spend more time on court or, or put as much prioritization and focus into other disciplines that might provide uh, the same, if not more, contribution to performance. Um, I think we should always applaud and be happy that they are, are putting focus into certain areas because it will have an effect. Just sadly, for some people, they need to be of greater priorities in other areas. And that actually is a much bigger communication, connection, resonation type job that you would have as a coach with that player. I also think, because I reflected on this, is that, you know, the relationship between you and I as a coach or me and any other coach would be such that you could have that indirect relationship by saying, you know, nutrition is going really well, isn't it? But, you know, we, we need them to be more prioritized in other areas. And even I can supply that in you know indirect subliminal type communication to try and see if we can get the same level of uh, priority into the other areas now i might not be the expert in those and shouldn't be delivering that but i can still help contribute to that yes which comes back to this multi-factorial um you know multi-functional teams that help athletes and players yeah yeah no that and i like that i guess for tennis coaches listening until i guess we'd had quite an open conversation on that I was probably guilty of playing a bit of a cynical role of going, you know, come on guys, forget about it. just let's get the big things right. And and I think your point is exactly right that we should be encouraging the good habits and the good form and and using that to then try and bring that through in other areas. So I, I've certainly reflected on and positively on that conversation. I don't think you shouldn't be blunt about it at times and, and, and you know the athletes to decide how you approach that. Um, I just my always my always concern is to play it off because then yeah. you might have have uh, an indirect effect um, negatively so on how they then view nutrition yes. or they might even go further into more detail on nutrition which is yeah. also what you would want and that's what yeah yeah no absolutely and, and and on that before we start moving into a couple of different areas i know that people would love to to hear a little bit more on what we should expect in terms of nutrition at, at, at different ages and stages of development um yeah, I, I mean, some of this is geared, of course, towards what budget people have to, to bring expertise in. Um, if they're part of a, a government, uh, sort of a national governing body as such, you know, when do these structures come in? I think we've got to be careful. We don't over bombard children at a young age with what feels like um, structured education as such or ed- nutrition education. We need to uh, embody um tactics and and workshops and resources that that really encourage education around parents and simple things like food groups and and cooking um and then as someone becomes a little bit older or more serious or or the the performance level rises that um they become more refined in that education i think um sometimes it's not we could have a great plan on paper about what a level of knowledge we want for different athletes at different levels. I think sadly it also depends on what structure and availability they have to those resources. Maybe the biggest conflict we have here is that the internet is amazing, right? You can, you can find anything on the internet. The question you 
as much there as well what's the good information and what's the bad information yeah um there's also a big difference between um reading about something and and actually learning by doing um and so a lot of this stuff i think it uh you know let's say between a young age uh, whatever that is six seven eight nine ten um through to 14 15 with parents should be encouraging a co-creation of food cooking together i mean we have a young family both um yeah. and i left the house this morning and and my uh wife amy said um that um i'm gonna cook with martha should we make something today because it felt like a fun thing to do yeah. she's three yeah, yeah. it was a fun thing to do but for some reason it's not fun to do at seven or eight yeah, yeah. or nine but actually we're ingraining a habit there of, of cooking, making something together. And, and those are probably would be the most successful nutritional strategies yeah, yeah. By, by just helping them um, do that. And yeah. one of the things we first did at Soto Tennis, wasn't it, was to come yeah. dine with me. Absolutely. And actually people have fun with it and they, yeah. they, they don't even remember it being about nutrition. Um, and, then, and I think those things are what's really important yeah. in an education age. Yeah. Um, I think education has to start early, but uh, it's about what type of education you're talking about, yeah. how applied and, and fun and just normal, normal. Yeah. Yeah. No one likes to go and have the feel of sitting in a classroom anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. just so, so old school. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I always, I really like the, the shopping together as well. You know, I think there's like that was a really, it was a really fun educational way of obviously even more so in Spain because you've got non Spanish speaking kids that having to learn to read what they're buying in, in Spanish and, and translate it and obviously then linking that into budgets and, you know, all of these type of things. I think they're, they're fantastic practical lessons that can be done in a fun way. Yeah, and then slowly over time, integrate lots of different things to them. So you do it in different countries where you have to overcome language barrier. If you're if you're a traveling group, um, you add uh, price budgets to it so they get to learn how to do it on different budgets. Um, and you do it on different days. So they're searching for food that can counter for a recovery day or a, a preparing for a performance day type thing. Um, and then you start to add in variables. And it's just the same thing over and over again. And I can tell you right now, today, some of the top nutritionists all around the world at some of the highest levels still do that work. Yeah. Still do that work. Um, yeah. And it shouldn't be overlooked. Um, and sometimes it's just not the stuff that always rises to the surface because, you know, it's not, it's not always easy to write something really interesting about it, but it can yeah. be a lot of fun. Yeah. It really can. We nearly got thrown out of a number of supermarkets, both in, in Spain. And yeah. funny enough, I did it with a rugby club back up in the Northeast. Um, and I think people started chasing after us thinking we were nicking food because I, I got them to put the food in the baskets because we would walk through the whole process. But of course, I don't think we were ever going to buy the food. So I think we actually then got challenged and asked to leave. So maybe that was a problem on my part. I should have asked the owner of the store, Tesco's or something, to say, we're going to come in. Do you know that it's okay? Because I think the cameras picked this up. But, you know, the silly things that happen. And, and and I think we're a few months away from that being okay in a supermarket as well, you know, in current yeah, times. Exactly. That's, that's not going to be allowed. Um, my last thing on nutrition, actually, Nick, is uh, obviously we, we naturally get asked this question. And I think people that 
people that are into or start being very body aware, start being very aware of the nutritional side of their life. Supplements is something that kind of comes, comes to mind. You know, what's, what's your take on that side of things? Yeah. I mean, I should start by declaring my conflict of interest here, which is most of my work and um, what pays the bills is supplement companies. Um, um, but I, but I have no issue with that because I think they play a really important role. Um, I think my job is to help them do it credibly and my job is to help various people to understand how to use them um, in a credible fashion. The first and most important point then is that, you know, they're, they're there not to replace a, a good quality diet. I think it's yeah. an overused statement only because I think it's so overused that people forget about it. I think it's yeah. a fundamentally, categorically, yeah. really important thing to state and to start with. But there are things that athletes sometimes can't get into their their diet, either enough of something that could be done by food, or maybe it's just not easily at, 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 can we get in from food that yeah. people could use to improve performance. Um, I think there's a key message around how they're sold in. So, you know, unfortunately, they can be seen as magic bullets. And so that, that becomes a, quite difficult to manage. Um, and... Again, it depends who's buying them, whether you have budgets and, and so on and so forth. But supplements can play a really important role. There's no doubt. I, I actually think they are fundamental to performance at a certain level. Yeah. Uh, it's then just the case of working with the right person to understand which products can work correctly for them and which ones to prioritize. Um, if you're traveling and you don't eat particularly well, have a lot of likes and dislikes, a multivitamin is, is something that would would be very important to you just for fundamental, you know, a peace of mind uh, intake of vitamins and minerals. Um, as someone developing at an early age, a lot of growth spurts, um, but maybe towards 17, 18, doing a little bit more strength and conditioning than protein would make sense to add in. Could I do that naturally through food? Absolutely. I would apply the same strategy. Would a protein shake be useful to that if I can't do it through food? Yes. Um, and in yeah. some instances can also be cost efficient. So there's a few things that can be that can be really useful. Um, I think you need someone to trust to engage yeah. and guide people on what to do because the risks and the pitfalls are there as well. Um, yeah. I don't think people are going to overconsume and, and have too much um, issues unless there's some um, already inherent health issues that people didn't know about. Uh, what I mean by that is there's a there's a there's an anti-doping risk. Um, yeah whereby athletes of all levels are subject to anti-doping regulations. I know most people at a top level are drug tested and some further down, less so. Yeah. But we are technically all subject to anti-doping regulations um, and should, should comply by that. And, and one of the, the silliest ways to fail that would be unconsciously consuming a supplement that had something in it that shouldn't be there. And unfortunately, those supplements do exist. Um, and anyone who buys a, a supplement that doesn't come with a pre-existing kite mark to suggest it's had some third-party testing um, is taking a risk. Now, over time, I think that risk is decreasing because the industry is becoming better at kind of, um, uh, you know, putting the sort of those those players that we don't really like in our industry to one side. But there is always a risk, and there's continued um, stories that come through where athletes fall foul of that. Um, I think it would be ridiculous in this day and age that within all the institutions within tennis or other sport don't have the education in place to ensure that that doesn't happen, but it will continue to happen. Yeah. And it's, um, it's, a, it's, it's a very difficult story to take. Um, I will also say, though, that if a, a, a nutritionist or even a coach is complicit now 
they can also be banned by the anti-doping agency for being complicit in the consumption of a product that could fall foul of an anti-doping regulation if they didn't show due diligence and where they got it from. So yeah. it's not just the athletes that, that can be taken down by this now. It's actually yeah. much broader than that. Um, and it's a serious subject, um, which, which also needs to be tackled in terms of education. Um, and uh, yeah, parents need to be engaged on that as well. Um, so if we take if we take Soto Tennis Academy or an academy like ours now, the fact that you are a part owner of the academy obviously it's it's great for us because we've we've got access to 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 this this information and we've got someone to to pass things through. But let's say we didn't. What would you what would you recommend for an academy for a parent for a for a player when it comes comes to supplements? Um, well, I think actually in that sense, the first thing you would, from that side, um, those are available in the UK. So, you know, you can go to UK sport and there's a number of resources on UK sports, um, um, that enable people to understand, um, their view on supplements. And they also guide people to, um, supplements that they, they, they'll never recommend per se, but what they, they, they basically now say, we appreciate that these are important. So we're giving you guidance to, to, to understand how to choose the right supplements. Um, so in that sense, UK sport is a, is a, is a independent governing body to gain resources would be really useful for parents who need to understand that. I think anyone within the LTA infrastructure, um, should really have access to that. that I, I, off the top of my head, I can't remember what it is, but I'm, yeah. I'm pretty certain that that information is available. Yeah. Um, and those further up in the structure of players for the NTC would definitely have that guidance. Um, as a first port of call, parents probably go by UK Sport for that. Um, they can talk to supplement companies directly. There is a kite mark for supplements called Informed Sport. Um, and so you can yeah. simply ask a company, are you Informed Sport certified or approved? And they'll be able to give you a straight yes or no. And if it's a yes, then in that instance, you would know it's gone through third-party testing. Um, and that's one part of it um, right, okay. in terms of a supplement risk. There's yeah. still the question as ever, which is should I or should I not take or should my young uh, boy or girl take a supplement at a certain age? I'm reticent to ever give blanket conversations on that or blanket recommendations because every person is different. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's, that's the, dif the difficulty really. Um, and you know that at that stage someone has to work out the risk reward or the, the value creation of maybe engaging with somebody um to provide that advice to them um, and that's possibly the best way no, it's, it's all really good advice and i think it's it's things that are out there that it's just a, it's another part isn't it being a parent being a coach in in the modern world there's so many different aspects to it for anyone listening, hopefully there's been some great advice uh, around around some of these nutritional points, you know. But but I would go back to it, make better choices more often, and and, and you won't go too far wrong. And I would even put that in with the supplements as well, you know. If you if you're making good choices around that and you you're doing it in a in a due diligent way, you you're not going to go too far wrong. Uh, absolutely. Um... Yeah, I mean, we don't need to labor on that. Just make better decisions more often. And um, I think consciously, and we, we talk about education a lot, but I think consciously people have a better idea now of what they should or shouldn't. And they definitely know what they more likely they shouldn't be doing. Yeah. Um, and if they can just take out one of those slowly but surely over time, 
then everyone that is a that's a one small step towards making better decisions and ingraining better habits um and i think just finding your relationship with food um, yeah. people don't always have the best relationship with food and, and trying to get back to enjoy it make yeah. it a socially um, enjoyable experience eat with others engage with others um etc is just sometimes some of the most simplest things yeah. that um, are done funnily enough better in some countries more than others yeah um that enable people to establish much better food habits from an early age yeah, yeah. Um, and uh uh and um probably my biggest piece of advice for everyone listening really is 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 our influence on others and that that's yeah. to the coaches out there yeah. to the parents out there that are listening the influence that we have on on our children on our players on our whoever it is in the habits and the decisions that we make are probably one of the most determining factors on establishing the nutritional ideals that people would want on their children at a young age yeah. no doubt for me no very good and as and as we move into obviously on the nutritional side a big part of that is the data that's collected what i'd love to get into with you nick and we've had a lot of discussions off air on this tennis is relatively new to the to the world of data you know, I think that the first time they've ever collected data was back in 1991. So it's still it's under 30 years. But in reality, it's not really come to the forefront of professional tennis since probably five, six, seven years, where we're now starting to get much, much more complex data coming in you know people are now fighting to see you know how how does that inform practice how do we how do we interpret this data can you give us a bit of an overview of the role that data plays in your day-to-day role right now and i guess the role that it plays within the, the nutritional world yes so um I guess my stuff's really quite quite specific and straightforward. So, as as a as a business who was providing consultancy services into industry, so I would advise uh, companies on product development, um, uh, the strategy of innovation, for example. One of the things I always needed to do was, as always, evolve with times, become more modern, and always have something sticky to my proposition that would enable them to keep wanting to work with me over time. Because someone's voice always deteriorates with time and you need to add more, you need to add more. Um, and um, one of the things I, I wanted to do from an early, from for the last three years was to add more of a data provision. So there was more some, some, some more objectivity to the, the way that we would take uh, more of our thoughts and opinions to customers. So effectively what we did is we went out and collected data on products. So every time you pick up a nutrition a nutrition bar or protein bar we would take that protein bar we would take all of the nutritional information in it on that in that bar all the ingredients we would take the claims that they make um whether it was a bar a ball or a bite we would take price and a few things and we take all our information and and we put it into into a database into the cloud up somewhere in the sky somewhere yeah. and 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 we now have database a, a number of databases on different product sets so we have you know, 8,000 bars in a database across Europe and the US, uh, similar on protein drinks, energy drinks. Um, would you believe I've done it in gaming nutrition um, because that's a hot topic at the moment. Uh, and we also do it in other, other areas, meal replacements and so on. And so that data can be really useful to informing. Um, I guess our tagline is 
making sense of the trends to inform strategy and innovation. Yeah. So making sense of what happens, using data to inform how we make sense of the world around us to then make informed decisions about what we do on innovation, yeah. effectively new products and uh, strategy. So, you know, how you actually take that to market. Um, and that is a fundamental commercial arm of our business now. Um, and to be honest, two, two and a half years on, I can't imagine a world where I didn't have this data now because it's so important yeah. to the way that we do, we do business as everyone does business around data and technology. And if we can try and link that then into tennis, you know, obviously you're, it's not your day to day anymore, but you, you were a good tennis player. You're still passionate about tennis. What from a, a little bit of an outside of you, what's your view on how they do data in tennis? Um, okay. A good, a good question. And, and as you know, I'm, I'm always, careful not to go too far because when you don't know too much about something you might have an opinion that that ultimately is not not relevant um but uh, to the point on some of the things we have uh, and the, that, that seem to marry to the learnings that we've had as a business building a yeah. data and, and effectively selling that into industry and and having no hiding place in terms of making sure the data is right accurate collected yeah. properly etc is that um the big discussion we've had is 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 macro data. So yeah. I, I think the one that we always talk about is the the, the point one naught to four shots. Yeah, which I've heard a lot actually on the on the number of podcasts that I've listened to, and I always find fascinating because it's a macro level, it's a macro level aggregated stat. And yeah. um, and one of the things we work on on data from our side is just a level of aggregation. Now aggregation basically means how you pull together statistics to create or pull together data to create. Uh, one or two stats and those stats you know can ultimately do you know what they do they create headlines they create yeah. headlines that people get behind and they love yeah. but what we've always found is that those macro level data don't really do anything other than create headlines so they they yeah. perk interest but they don't offer true insight because yeah. you always need a, a double click and and that's part of our usp really is we offer a double click so it's the next layer of detail down so we can give you the nutritional version of the naught to four, but the reality is I don't believe that naught to four is massively useful because actually I think it's more misleading than it is useful yeah. um, because, you know, um, I think you use the analogy, uh, Ferrer is in the same data set as Karlovich. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and, and the game styles are totally different. I can't compare a protein bar to a cereal bar. Now, yeah. most people listening might not understand that context, but it would be just, it would just be bizarre for me to do that. Yeah. And consequently, unless I tag things accordingly and have a double click on my aggregation, which is what we offer. Yeah. And we provide, we provide databases for people to do that through various tagging, et cetera. Um, then that's what we have to offer. So my hope is that tennis has a double click and the infrastructure is in place in that as a bystander looking from the outside in who loves tennis, I only ever hear the total aggregated macro ones, which people talk about um, quite emotively also. Um, yeah. And I just, I just hope that people appreciate that it needs, the data needs to be a little bit more, um, needs to, needs to have a little bit more foresight in, in thought behind it, that they do go a, a level yeah. deeper to ensure that the insights are relevant. Yeah, uh, relevant to. Yeah, and I think the the double click, which I love, and obviously I've I've taken that from the discussions that we've had. If we double click into the zero to four. A little bit, but and, and still keep it as a as a as a big. There's, there's a couple of ways I'd like to go with this. One, 
the zero to four, you double click in and you let's say look at isolated second serve returns now go in the court. The reality is 55 plus points are now played over four shots. Whereas if you just look at that baseline headline stat, it's telling us that basically zero to four takes up 70% of the points. And that's where we need to absolutely focus, you know, but, and then the second thing, which we've again discussed before is exactly what you said. How does Karlovich come under the same data set as Diego Schwartzman, who's five foot four, you know, now if, if, and for somebody out there who's got the time who wants to help us with this, please let's, let's bring this together. But, you know, almost putting them into groups of this is this type of player, you know, it might be your Karlovich, your Isner, your, your Apelka, you know, the guys that are, that are serving and looking to hold serve 95% of time, because I use, I call it the 105% rule. You know, you've got your 100% of service games, 100% of return games. And to be successful, no matter what your style is, at any level, you have to be looking to win 105% of those games. Now, John Isner is holding serve 96% of times and breaking 9%. Whereas Diego Schwartzman is holding serve 72% of times and breaking 33 so they're actually they're getting to their 105, but how they're doing it is very different. And if we just throw that whole that the, the whole data from all of those different game styles together, we have to be a little bit careful. The the other double click that I'd love to see in the tennis world is is big points. You know, 30 all points, 30, 40 points, you know, because my my very strong feeling would be you get Djokovic playing against Andy Murray in a semi-final of a slam, your 30 all points, your 40, 30 points, your 30, 40 points, your juice points, the average rally length is going to go up again. You know, so uh, this is where I think we've got to get to a little bit more detail yeah. in the tennis world. One of the, um, the those are the things. So the the to 4 gives you an avenue, right? It's it's the door into the data. Yeah. So you get something, you go, that's really interesting. Oh, I, you know, what's that? What does that have? Now, there'll be a secondary level there of questions, which are fundamentally important. And you, you touched on the ones that I, I completely understand. What happens at 30 all? What do people do on break points and so on? The other area, which you didn't touch on, funnily enough, Noah Ruman on his podcast um, yeah. with you said, yeah, well, sets two and three can be a tank. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So in a five set grand slam, the way that the momentum shifts is, you know, he was saying it's boring, right? Because he knows what happens and he can see it happening. You know, those sets go by probably more yep. so than people appreciate in a grand slam. Now, if the stats stay the same at the end of it, then so be it. But you know what? I'd rather know the answer to that than not know the answer to that. Yeah. And therefore, those things need to be understood um, and those things need to be interrogated. And actually, that is not a massive amount of work for yep. a data provision service to do. Yeah. assuming that the infrastructure and the tag is, tagging is in place. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really important. Um, I would also add that the other major thing, if it's okay, is just to say that we, we surveyed a lot of our com customers to make sure yeah. we better uh, provided a service to them. And do you know what ultimately they say that they want the data for? To support preconceived narrative. Right. Okay. They already have decided what they want the data to tell them. Right. And they want yeah. you to, they've already decided what to do. And they want you to help them prove it. Right. Which is, 
And, um, you know, you could turn around and say, wow, industry really does that. Well, it happens in all industries. Yeah, subconsciously, we, subconsciously, we do that. Um, and, and the practitioners do things. And, and one of the dangers about data, which, by the way, there's so many positives. It's just that our learnings have been so amazing along the way. Is that just? It's amazing how many people just want to just want to support preconceived narratives and use data to support it. Yeah. Because ultimately, data doesn't tell you the answers. It just tells you the the. It just tells you effectively what actually happens. But like I've always said, there's two stories to every statistic, yeah. um, and that 75% means oh my, I must follow that. Yeah. I'm probably more interested in the 25%. Um, okay. And that's and, 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 and these are really important things for people yeah. to understand. Um, yeah. Again, is it about headlines or is it about informing practice? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the different ways around because I would, if I, if I read a report, so let's say, let's say my, my, one of my players or one of the academy players goes, goes to a national training camp or the other way around, some player comes to Soto Tennis Academy. My, one of my issues with tennis is tennis coaches are the masters at giving subjective opinion. And, and some of the best talkers and giving that opinion often end up coaching the most players and the best players because they're able to... It, it, and it's not to say that it's not very, very good information. But, it, but they're, able, they're able to give that. Now, if I get a, this report coming back with just opinion, I would definitely feel it was more credible if it backed it up with some stats and some data behind it. And the person doing that might not give the absolute, to the point, perfect statistic, but if it's in and around the ballpark that it is sort of proving the point, they do come away with a lot more credibility. And I guess my point's twofold on that. One, it's nice to receive that. But two, if you're the one that's making a living out of giving that, those sort of reports, you do want to have the data to, to back up your narrative. <laughs> so so, so that, there, there, lie, there lies the problem. I, I think so. And, and, and this is a really interesting area as well, because um, I would argue that for a lot, of, a lot of situations, the subjective or the gut feeling can be more often than not right. And I don't think yeah. we should ever, under, and, um, we should not play that down at all. Um, but it's, it's about the combination of the two. Um, as a company, we pride ourselves. Um, we call ourselves industry insiders because we've worked in the industry for so long. You know, yeah. So in your instance, it'd be like you having a data company, but basically your whole life's been tennis. So you're an insider who's built a data company because your definitions are realistic, the way you interpret it is yeah. realistic and so on. Uh, sadly, in other data industries, the, the data comes with people who aren't insiders. So you know maybe the, the definitions are a bit off and, and so on. Yeah. Um, and that the, the art of combining data with informed subjectivity and, and then interpretation of the data is the ultimate combination. Yeah. Um, and 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 I'll, and there'll never be a right or wrong answer, by the way, because there's yeah, so yeah. many other variables, and that's that's crucial. And I always say that the context of data is really important. So when you see a statistic on a page, but if you saw like if you saw a, t a statistic in tenants, but then you suddenly um, then you suddenly played every point that that statistic was related to, every single one of those could have related to a product, a point that a player tanked. But yeah. you wouldn't have known the context of that. Yeah. Um, and so 
sometimes you have to drill down to understand the context of the data and, yeah. and the context changes your interpretation of that data. So Absolutely. you need to still almost visibly see the tennis as much as just read the report. So yes. data with clips, data with, um, and, and that's why sometimes the timing of the data delivery is important because it's fresh in the mind of people to remind themselves when or how that data played out in there yeah. in, in the mind. So, Data, I think, is criticized much because people think you're trying to be just only data focused. It's yeah. not about data is an art. As we've said in many areas, art of science, it's about providing context and it's providing informed subjectivity for the interpretation of that data. And yeah. I think anyone that provides an overtly strong opinion that data informs something overwhelmingly, yeah. I'm not convinced that's what data providers should do. Um, yeah. I think that's up to you. I, I, I don't think data can ever be so strong or vehement in yeah. one way. Yeah. And I, my, my, my example of that is I think that, well, innovation in, our, in nutrition comes from things that had no pre-data to it. Right. Okay. And a, a true innovation is when people went, God, I didn't see that happening. Yeah, How yeah. did that happen? And then everyone goes, oh, yeah, that was obvious. We all saw that coming. But it never, no one did because otherwise yeah. everyone would have done it. Yeah. So where did that innovation come from? Yeah. It came from the minority in the data. It came from the data before it was data. Yeah. So it comes from outliers. So big step changes in the way things happen come from outliers. They don't come from aggregated yeah. um, things. Now, you know, developing players based on aggregated norms, you know, you need to be good at naught to four, obviously makes sense. But yeah. So you need to work out what type of data you, you're looking for and you need to have clear questions and clear hypotheses. Yeah. Bit of a long rumbling answer, I'm conscious, but... Um, Oh, it's, a, it's amazing place it's, and you just need some yeah. good support to help answer some good questions. Yeah, and I'll, I, I want to get back to that and make a point linking it back into tennis, but you you talked about outliers being being the place where maybe you're, change, you're making a step change. Can you give us an example of that in your field? Um, everyone, um, people are looking for rate of change data so that means something you know suddenly is um you know increased massively in market or has sudden growth so you've suddenly got 200 percent growth in, the, in a company yeah. um, and they want to see it happen on 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 one or, or two or three brands that, that are doing something different yeah. and so effectively what happens is innovation or trends trends stuff trends yeah. reports normally are all based on demonstrating accelerated growth on, on products that are broadly unique. And then, do you know what that is? It's because they've captured or they resonated with consumers um, and they, they've effectively established the next big thing. Um, I'd say a really good one outside of that is also Gymshark. Do you, know, yeah. do you know, everyone who said that they didn't assume Gymshark would ever be successful when they turned up at the very beginning. And now everyone's like, wow, I can't believe it. But that, like, Ben Francis took something that no one else was doing. So yeah. would you have found a data point on Gymshark when Gymshark no, started? Yeah. No, of course you don't. But now you'll get some great data points on it and everyone thinks to do it. So is yeah. now everyone going to be the next Gymshark or are they trying to be yeah. the Gymshark that doesn't exist yet? Yeah. And, and, and I'm, I'm not saying everyone needs to look for the big step change. And yeah. it's the same in nutrition. Um, you know, for some people, they just need to, to get the real basics in place. Um, so it depends what you're looking for. It depends on what your tennis player is at what level and what marginal gains yeah. or gains at all they're looking for. Yeah. Um, but 
but outliers for us is hugely informative. It normally tells you that things can be done when people think they can't be done because yeah. they're demonstrated to be done, but people don't look at the single dot. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would look at every, everything we spend our time on i always look at the ones that are on that i always look at the things that don't make sense yeah and i guarantee you that if you then looked at the video of a player doing something that didn't quite make sense i bet you it's super interesting no no absolutely i i i learned this lesson early early stages of coaching and i, I won't name names but but i was coaching a, a good nine ten year old and she was a little bit extreme on the grip a little bit and I was told by a top, supposedly top person that was this job was to come and I guess mentor me or to, you know, to manage this girl from a national level. Um, she can't be a tennis player with that grip because all of the girls use this grip now. Now, this was, this girl would now be 21 years old. And you've got now in the top 10 in the world, you've got Ash Barty who, who plays a little bit more around the grip and plays with a different shape, uses slice comes to the net. But when this girl was 10, it was when a lot of the Russian girls were coming through and it was just on top of the grip, smack hard and flat. So I think it's something we're massively guilty of in, in tennis, you know? And I think, I think if we're not careful, as good as, as good as it has been, I think to start challenging the status quo and bringing bringing the data to the forefront of tennis. I think we have to be careful that we're not going into let's develop all of these clones again based on on what this on what this data is telling us because that's just a self fulfilling prophecy anyway within our sport. Effectively, you're. The, the statistics, if you just allow everyone to follow it at a macro aggregated level, basically means everyone's going to play the same. Um, yeah. and, and then the game becomes boring. So that's bad for the game in a, in a yeah. much more commercial sense. Um, it also means that it becomes harder to differentiate. Um, and what is the beauty about tennis is, and the context there is also key. You know, obviously, maybe the point percentage is the same for Federer and Nadal, but they, maybe they play the game differently, of course. So yeah. there is some context to that. But but at this age, you know, they're very unique characters. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, at a, at a development age, ultimately, you're just going to create loads of tennis players that play the same. And I think it becomes harder and harder to differentiate. Yeah. But it will mean that those that love tennis the most and psychologically are, are, are strongest in their mind and are more fighters than others yeah. um, will, will succeed. Um, but therefore, how do people find yeah. their niche and you yeah. always talk about game style so you need to find the game styles and game yeah. styles are in the data but people yeah. are looking at nought to four and nought to four forgets game styles for me um in my, yeah. in my in my top line interpretation and yeah. i know there'll be loads of coaches saying well we do that and that's great and uh, and, and that's amazing um and I, I hope they do and that's all my that's all my my want really for this is that people uh, learn to use data and it really pains me when i hear people don't think it's useful because that for me tells me that it's been integrated poorly yes. um, because data is so much fun but it's all about the interpretation and the, the yeah. discussion and debate over a statistic can be some of the best um, discussion and the most rewarding um, that can be achieved it's just that people want data to yeah. tell them an answer and yeah. sadly data doesn't tell answers it's yeah. still your skill as a coach it's still Trotter's skill as a coach who I've listened to and all the other people you've had on. 
it's the skill of your coach to make those interpretations um, yeah. and and that's that's what it's about yeah. um i just hope people have access to it um yeah. or can find good access to it in the in my world it's a commercial operation so you know i'm a provider and there are three other providers and i have to try and be better than them um yeah. and 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 that comes down to actually being the coach it becomes you or, or yeah. whoever and that's that's important um my other point if i if i may is just we always talk about the stats at the highest level but you but we're at soto talking about different players at different levels that's so good. what how do those stats relate to 16 year olds or you know yeah. how do they relate to the kids playing tennis in spain yeah. versus everyone playing on an indoor court at corby i don't know the answer to that by the way yeah, i'm yeah. just saying that we talk about stats and tennis always at the highest level which is great for andy and kyle and evo and whoever but what about everyone else yeah, yeah. but the big thing for me on that nick is I go back to the 105 percent rule that that for me is the most important statistic because if you're if you're losing if you're winning 95% of the possible 200 you're losing a lot of matches bottom line bottom line you're losing a lot of matches so so what we would do whether you're age 12 or whether you're age 25 is we will we will look at service games won return games won and, and work out with game style what what sort of aggregates are you looking at? Are you a are you a John Isner who's gonna have to hold ninety-five percent of times and, and try and scat your your ten return games, ten percent of the return games? Are you an Ash Barty who is holding sixty percent of time but breaking forty-five percent? You know, what is it? Because the bottom line is if you're not reaching those figures, we need to find a way of getting those up then our job becomes to just click in a little bit. Okay, we also know that you need to be trying to win a certain percentage of points on your first serve, certain percent of the point on the second serve. That will vary with game style, but let's look at that. You know, and, and, and if I can just share an example of how we've done it in a very basic level, but I also like to think we've done it in a, in a, in a way that's really interpreted and ultimately been a way of knowing our player, is Evan Hoyt at the futures level, and I think this is important as well, is following it on the level of tournament they're playing because that is a, a variance that can, can make a big change. He was holding serve 91% of service games on the futures level. When he went up to the challenger level, he was holding serve 72% of games. So I'm looking at that goal. There's almost a 20% difference here. That's massive. Okay. He was winning a lot of futures tournaments. He's not winning so many matches at a challenger level. So then I looked into it and I, and, I, and I compared his first serve points won and his first serve percentage. And it was almost identical at both levels. So that's not my red flag. I then looked at it and he was winning 58% of second serve points at futures level, but he was now winning 41% at challenger level. We now have a 17% difference which is, made, which is the key to him holding serve or not holding serve, my job then becomes double-click again into that. Why? <laughs> Why is he not winning as many second serve, second serve points? I had a feeling, you know, obviously the, the returners at that level are returning to a, higher, to a higher level. We then looked at it. We had to get video. We looked at that. We, we, we dug a little bit deeper and we, we worked out that he wasn't as effective 
and he, the returns were better and he wasn't as effective from a neutral or defensive position on ball three than, than he was obviously at, at futures level. The returns weren't as strong and he was on top of the point after his second serve. So now we've, we've identified the key area of work for him to work on and that was worked very hard on and, and will continue to be and, and we saw then a percentage rise in, in, the, in the coming weeks from there. Now that is a process that all the data's done is is has made me curious to to have a little look have a little look further and and what i what i what I, my i guess plea with with coaches is and i'm with you on this don't just switch off to it data and just play the whole fixed mindset old-fashioned card of our oh, data's a load of bollocks we don't want to be doing that but at, but at the same time, don't be lazy and just look at the top line and think all of a sudden you just need to do serve and return with your with your players because we know that seventy percent aggregated across across one you know Grand Slam is seventy percent. You know, use it to interpret, use it to dig, use it to get to the bottom of, and and then I think it's a fantastic thing. I mean, I agree. Two really quick points. I think the first point that's most important about that is the personalization of the data towards Evan in that instance. Um, again, one of the things we talk about with every customer is saying that we will personalize the data to their, to their needs. Basically, there needs to be a so what. Do you know where people really struggle with data? Is sometimes they read it and they go, so what? Um, yeah. And that's the reality is the so what is because it's not really, it's, yeah. not, it's, not, it's not provided for them in mind. Yeah. It's just a top line approach to tennis or to nutrition. And so we spend our time personalizing our data to the individual, which is where you get the most reward. Um, and that's a great example of it. Um, and uh, I think tennis has a really nice ability, you know, compared to the nutrition industry where you can affect things um, more quickly. You know, it yeah. takes six months to launch a new product in nutrition. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So in that sense, you know, you can affect performance tournament um, uh, tournament to tournament um, and, and, and therefore you've got the ability to, to, to move with it um, there is a danger that you don't become paralyzed by analysis or paralysis by analysis which is people love to go into areas and, yeah. and start thinking things are important when they're not um, but again life would be easy if this was all straightforward and that your examples basically highlight that it's the skill of the coach um, yeah. and, and again uh, you know, we talk about whether athletes want to receive this data or not. That's, do you know what the, the biggest factor on that's the coach. So if people yeah. don't believe that data is useful, um, I actually blame the coaches. <laughs> this is more, that's a bit yeah. harsh maybe, but um, it, 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 it's, it's a way to differentiate. It's a way, yeah. and that's what everyone wants to be different. It's about to be skills, it's tactics. Otherwise life would be easy. Life is yeah. not easy. We're not all meant to play the same way, do the same thing. Um, yeah. And so if you take data at top line, it's lazy. It's all the same stuff. You've yeah. got a double click, but you've got to learn the skill that you don't double click 10 times and then you're into a furrow that's of meaningless use. Yeah. You need to, and, and that's, where the, that's where you earn your money. Um, yeah. Traveling coaches earn their money. Um, and that's the beauty about it. Data yeah. is an informing process. Um, and then it allows you to skill up the skill in the debate. Yeah. Well, very good. And can I ask you, do you... Is all the data that's collected by you guys objective data or is, is there some subjective data that you then need to have really clear definitions of? Well, ultimately, everything you present is effectively objective. It's the fact that 
a lot of that information is would have subjective definitions to it. So you know, yeah. some a really example is, you know, what is my definition of a protein bar? What is my definition of a yeah. cereal bar? And and you might be sitting there and think, well, that's kind of obvious. It's sadly in my world, it's actually not. Okay. Um, and and there's loads of examples where you'd be going, oh bloody hell, is that that's one or the other? And then yeah. and your your definitions are tested all the time. And it's impossible yeah. to have a definition that is is 100% robust. Yeah. Um, and we thought, I thought, we thought as a company, uh, I particularly thought that that would be possible. And it was, it, it took me a while to accept that it's not. So you need to accept limita- limitations and definitions. You will find that some things fall between cracks, but ultimately, as long as that's a very, very small minority, and that you can keep checking that minority to make sure that, that either you don't suddenly need another definition that wasn't relevant three years ago, that now you need to introduce mm-hmm. or not. And these are all learning processes behind, behind the curve. But the most important thing about definitions, people argue about whether a definition is right or wrong. Probably the most important thing about definition is consistency of implementation. And that, that con- if that definition is transparent, and understood whether people agree with it or not, as long as it's consistently applied across the board, then ultimately you're reviewing apples for apples or oranges for oranges. And so consistency and application on that, because just like a statistic, you could debate the definition, but then that becomes futile because you discuss things where ultimately you just need to put a line in the sand and make a call on it. Um, But interestingly, most people in our industry don't ask about definitions they don't ask about methodologies and they take things face to face and in some instances move between suppliers and suppliers and their definitions are different but they would never ask that question um and i find that astronomically um incredible that people don't do that um and that's maybe i'm more curious than others but when you look when you build a data company and then you realize all the pitfalls of definitions when you realize the difficulty in tagging um, and honestly is, isn't it the same as Karlovich and, and there's players that are hybrid, you know, Federer, I don't know, maybe he doesn't serve a volley as much, but at some stage he's probably morphed from one definition into another type of definition of a, of a type of player. Yeah. You know, things are not straightforward. No. Um, but again, as a provider, it's so interesting. It's so interesting, but that's where you also learn the game. So if you understand methods, you learn the game better. Yeah. Because you see the people that fall between cracks. And then I ask myself, why are they between a crack? And then you look at it and you might discard it. But I tell you what, you might find it really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I don't quite know the, the transition to tennis, but I know there's a number of definitions that you've that, that would cause a lot of problems. Um, and they just need to be transparent. And the yeah. collection of those, by the way, needs to be by skilled people who can yeah. consistently apply those definitions. Yeah, no, no, very good. No, that would be my, like I say, I would be a big advocate for, for the data as as I've given a couple of examples for, but if we take kind of the top line that we're being fed, which is the zero to four first first serve percentage, can't argue with that. You know, first serve points one, we can't argue with that. It is what it is. Second serve points one, it is. You know, ultimately you've won the point or you haven't. But where it falls down for me, and I'm and I'm not satisfied. And I've had Craig or Shanice on who on the podcast to. Craig's doing great things in the sport. He's he's pushing things forward and fair play for him for doing that. But I he talks a lot about net points one and baseline points one. And I don't see anywhere clarity on what the definition is. And me and you could sit and watch a match this afternoon and we would have a different idea and a different number 
for the number of points won on the baseline and the number of points won at the net. It's not clear cut, but the definition's not out there transparently for for me. So I actually disregard that data. I don't I don't take that data on. You know, there's people out there that are trying to trying to sell to players that 65% of points are won at the net, so you need to come to the net more. But I, I'm not sure that it's relevant until we fully understand the definition and until we get absolute consistency of, of collection of that data over, over, over a time period within, within that definition. Yeah, I, it's an interesting one because in, in, um, in, in, our, in our nutrition database, we, we always thought we would have um, a definition called sports nutrition. All of these products are sports nutrition products. But you know what? The definition is now not relevant. I would never, ever call anything sports nutrition anymore because it's undecipherable what is and what is not sports, sports nutrition. Yeah. And I'm a vehement uh, proponent of that fact in our industry, um, quite, quite overtly uh, talk about it and underpin it with the data. In that instance, there might be a situation where that statistic is almost impossible to do. And the sooner, therefore, it is removed, the better. Because all yeah. it does is create misinterpretations. Yeah. Um, unless, unless that one person can consistently do it every time so well yeah. that that is so consistent. But, but if you need, but once you get to, to, to large scale data sets, you may need, you may even need to collect that data through some form of autonomous scraping, for example, like we might scrape data from, from yeah. internet sites, for example, um, in which case there is no human interaction in that data collection yeah. and therefore it's an algorithm and then that algorithm will have weaknesses. So if there's a certain degree of discussion in a definition that no one can agree on, or you can't, you can't just go, well, okay, well, that's fine, but at least we now know what that means. Then yeah. that definition needs to be discarded. Otherwise, people will use it over and over again, and it will create falsehoods in what or how the game is being portrayed, developed, or played, um, or evolving, because it's not relevant. Um, and there's more bravery in discarding of definitions than persisting with definitions. Um, I just don't know about that one intimately. I just know that we've discarded definitions because it was of no use, and I believed it was uncredible to our data. Nick Morgan, I think it's a it's a fantastic place to stop the podcast. Um, I, I want to leave everyone pondering that, you know, in in the tennis world, that we'd love to get your thoughts. You know, reach out, and you know, we can always give give our thoughts back. But uh, it's it's great to have you on the show, mate. It's been a long time coming. We've threatened to do it a, a few weeks ago. Um, but a, a big, a big thank you to you for for your time, and I know the listeners will, will take a lot from it. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Yes, yeah, been good. Interesting to be <clears throat> having just listened to so many of them to sort of contribute. I hope it's interesting. Um, both subjects are, are, you know, really cool, quite important to date tennis, of course. So um, yeah, like anything, we just we just want to stimulate some thoughts, discussion, and and maybe people can take things from this to. I don't know, think differently or, or do something um, or action something. So, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. Top man. A big thank you to Nick for joining the show. Uh, as you would pick up from the podcast, a very intelligent young man uh, who has certainly 
helped I've learned so much from him over the years. He's he's a big part of sort of tennis academy behind the scenes, and it's and it's great to get his views on all of those areas. Um, with his tennis knowledge and background, being able to kind of link link the different areas together, I think is one of the one of the most difficult things to do. We take this kind of data, this sports science data, whether it's from nutrition, whether it's from in the gym, and how do we then link that together into ultimately improving our athletes and improving the people that we're working with. And and I think he does a great job of being able to kind of bridge that gap between. So I, I hope you enjoyed it, guys. Hope everyone's well, wherever they are, whatever you're doing. A big shout out to you all. Um, big, big love from Controller Controllables. Thank you for listening. And we will be back on Saturday. I'm Dan Kiernan, my co-host, John McGann. We are Control the Controllables.